Hello and welcome to the Ragged Scratch podcast, the new writing night in podcast form. I'm your host, Natalie, actor, director, producer and collector of stories. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, a huge welcome to you. You're in for a delectable selection of new writing audio drama goodness. Each season, we ask writers to submit short audio plays. We pick 12 of them, and then we match them up with a director and actors to produce and release over six episodes, alongside interviews with said writers so you can get into the nitty-gritty of their creative process. We cover a wide range of genres and styles, and each piece is only 5 to 12 minutes long or thereabouts, so if you don't like one, then another will be along shortly afterwards. This season has been produced a little differently than previous seasons, given the pandemic globally in general and the various lockdowns and safety restrictions in the UK in particular. So typically we'd all gather on one day and record 12 pieces in a studio in furious dramatic marathon, but this season has been recorded entirely remotely in actors' homes. There's been a bit of technological grappling along the way, so please forgive us a few sound quality blips here and there, but the levels of writing and performance remain just as exciting, excellent and fresh as before. So without further ado, kicking off this season is Jane Morris's Blood Money, a spooky story perfect for Halloween, or Christmas, as you'll discover in my interview with her afterwards. Harker is an antiquarian and thoroughly rational, the last sort of person to encounter anything supernatural. Blood Money is performed by Hannah Raymond Cox as Harker, Alan Andrews as Clarence, and with direction and sound design from Alastair Green. I just wanted to clarify, before we begin, that this is not a ghost story. Certainly, when I've told the story before, to friends, colleagues and so on, some have suggested to me that it could be a ghost story. I do not entertain such thoughts, you must understand this. It started, as so many unpleasant stories do, with a banker. Harker? Are you Harker? Yes, sir. You're Harker? Yes, sir. Well, you're the one they told me about, here to appraise my collection, as I understand it. That is the matter which has been set before me, Mr. Clarence. He was a thin man, Clarence. The word gaunt hardly covered it. He wore a suit that day, even though it was just him and me. The house was extraordinary. Been in the family generations, you understand. Of course, most of the homes I visit are very similar. Um, ancestral? Family. Of course, a person in your trade couldn't possibly be... Antiques is a job which attracts ghost stories. Most of my fellows have one or two. I have never seen anything supernatural, nor anything which provides evidence of the supernatural. You must understand this. It is vital. I do not believe this to be a ghost story. Well, here we are. Impressive. Ah, yes, thank you. It's been the work of generations. 
I can see. It will take some time to examine all the items. Would you not be indisposed to the idea of remaining here with me to answer the occasional question? By all means. Thank you. Take this, for instance. Ah, yes, the storming of Seringapatam. You may think it is diamond. By no means, sir, it is not a diamond. Oh, clever, clever. You're a credit to your, uh, your type. No, it is not a diamond. It is, in fact, a moonstone, holy to the Hindu people for a number of years. Uh, how did it come into your family's possession after the siege of Seringapatam, then? Was it a payment, or...? To the victor, the spoils, Harker. Surely even you understand that. I see. What did you mean by my type? This here. This was picked up by uh, a great, 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 etc., etc., something or other, you understand? Where is it from? Kukwanaland, or so I've been told. I believe it's the Democratic Republic of Central Kukwanalau, Mr. Clarence. Yes, yes, I'm sure they've got some fancy name for it nowadays. They have the most beautiful rock-cut architecture, I understand. Extraordinary work for such a primitive people. Perhaps, then, they are not so primitive after all. Hmm, what do you think of this piece? <laughs> um, to be frank, Mr. Clarence, I think it belongs in a museum. Irish? Oh, very astute. It's not quite the Book of Kells, but I am yet to see an illuminated manuscript which fails to take my breath away. The craftsmanship is superb. Ah, oh, but the handwriting is rushed. So it is, Harker. So it is. It shouldn't affect the price overly. Was it picked up by an ancestor of yours? No, no, no. I discovered that one all on my own. I was in the army in the 70s and, well, you know how it is. Not really, no. Well, you're young. Why are you selling? Pardon? I don't understand. You clearly treasure these objects, for whatever reason. Why would you have them sold? I hardly think it is your place to ask such questions. Forgive me. I just... I want to make sure you're not doing something you'll regret. No. No, I think I'll sleep quite easy. Hmm. Well... If your family has fallen on hard times... I am a banker, Harker. I was with the IMF for a number of years. I rent properties in every corner of this great country of ours. No, I have not fallen on hard times, Harker. It is, in fact, the simple matter that I have bad dreams. I have bad dreams, Harker, terrible dreams. They've been getting worse ever since I moved back into this house. I see people, it's... It's very shadowy. There's a... There's a, a copper taste in the air. You understand? At first, when they started, oh, God knows how many years ago, they happened once every few months, say. But now, they happen almost every night. Last night, I... I, I was... I woke up in the night, you understand, Harker, and I, I, I thought I saw a person stood in my room. But I turned on my light, and it was only a red jacket hung on my door, except... Except? Except I don't own a red jacket. I never have. And I certainly didn't hang one on my door. And besides, there was that... 
that copper taste in the air. <clears throat> I don't like it, Harker. I don't like it one bit. You understand this morning I packed my bags? I'm moving out tomorrow evening, as soon as the staff have my townhouse prepared. Then, I called up your employer and requested someone come immediately to appraise my items so they could be sold as soon as possible. I don't want the wretched things anymore, Harker. And they don't want me. I see. No, I don't think that you do. I don't think that you can. Now, if you wouldn't mind, I am paying you for your time in the expectation that you appraise. I would like you to continue to do so. It was a cold afternoon in that drafty chamber. I was surrounded by art and artefacts. It should have been the dream for a person in my profession. But the eyes of Clarence followed me around the room, and every object I catalogued and appraised carried with it a new and ever bloodier chapter of history. Hmm. A fine bit of work, Harker. A fine bit of work. I finished the appraisals. It was getting dark, and I was eager to leave. Thank you, sir. Now, about my payment? Of course. With me. A safe is an old-fashioned thing. He unlocked it for me, and then made to leave the room. You can count it out your fee yourself. <laughs> Thank you for placing such trust in me. No, 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 no. I'll have the money checked to make sure only your fee is missing. So don't try anything. I know what your lot can be like. He left. You have to understand. I am not prone to anger. Rage is not an emotion with which I am overly acquainted. But I suddenly felt the urge to take the money which sat in the safe and burn it all up. A fantasy, of course. I reached my hand inside and... <gasps> ah, um... Pulled it away again. It was red. And warm. A thin liquid was dripping from it. Gingerly, I looked back into the drawer where the notes had been. They were there. But as I watched, a deep scarlet liquid was oozing out of them. The money was bleeding. It was, unmistakably, bleeding. I rushed out of that house and left the money where it was. I wanted none of it. And that would be the end of my story, except the bloody banknotes is one thing, product of my imagination, no doubt, my anger at the detestable Mr. Clarence and his violent ancestors. The bloody banknotes do not prove this to be a ghost story. And, indeed, I am not sure it is a ghost story. No, I am quite sure it is not a ghost story. But... But it is a remarkable coincidence that, the following morning when I read the newspaper, and I am sure you can imagine my state of remarkable trembling when I read it, I discovered that Mr. Clarence, formerly of the International Monetary Fund and certainly a most successful man in the city, had been found dead. He had drowned in his sleep. What he had drowned in was a mystery. No liquid was to be found anywhere in his room, 
or on his person, although the taste of copper had been noticed in the air. For me, I thought of those bloody banknotes and the way the thick liquid had filled that safe. Well, what is it Macbeth said? Blood will have blood. And, I suppose, blood money will have its revenge. So I am here with the writer of Blood Money. Could you please introduce yourself and your pronouns? Hello, uh, my name is Jane Morris and I use she, her pronouns. Welcome to the Ragged Scratch podcast. Thank you so much for submitting your piece. We loved producing it. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your writing background? Yeah, so I've been writing for a few years now. Uh, I wrote my first full-length play. Uh, when I was 16 and my youth theatre asked me to adapt The Hand of the Baskervilles, which was really exciting. Um, I wrote a play which went to the Edinburgh Fringe, which was an adaptation of Spring Awakening. It got really terrible reviews, which was <laughs> a learning experience and really joyful in lots of ways. And then since then, um, I've written a couple of things here and there, some short films and stuff. And my last sort of major Thing was last year I wrote an adaptation of John Reed's 10 Days That Shook the World. Uh, it was also an adaptation of Louise Bryant's Six Red Months in Russia, which are two first-hand accounts of the Russian Revolution. Yeah, and it, we did it as a musical, so that was what I spent most of last year working on, and we toured it around fringe festivals in uh, England. This year we were going to take it to the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, which for some reason didn't turn out to be what, what occurred, but we instead recorded an audio version of it so if you check out the thornhill theater space facebook page you can listen to the audio version of it uh, we're also planning on releasing that as a podcast and the music from it because it's a musical on music apps but that is still being arranged so we'll we'll see when that happens yeah but that was the last thing i did amazing let's start to focus on blood money a little bit so in your application you described it as a piece for christmas in the tradition of mr james who is a renowned like victorian slash edwardian scholar and he wrote a lot of ghost stories so i personally i'm not familiar with his work to my shame um i did have to look him up when you mentioned him but um but i'll definitely be uh, reading up now because i i love spooky stories and everything halloween and ghost stories um so some of our audience might not be familiar with him either. I was wondering, could you possibly describe the types of stories that he wrote and what it was about them that captured your interest? So M.R. James, Montague Rhodes James, to use his name, and that's a name which sort of destines you to Cambridge, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. He did go to, to Eton and he was, by all accounts, you know, uh, not the most sort of progressive gentleman, but I have a, a real love for his stories because I think they are, uh, they do something really interesting because they sit uh, exactly on the boundary between the classical Victorian Gothic and the cosmic mm. horror story, which takes over from the 20s onwards as the predominant form of ghost story and horror story. What interested me about 
the stories is that I think they have something really interesting in that they are um, quite cosy. Um, they're not sort of gory, they're not sort of um, uh, violent, but they uh, are really very unsettling. Um, and they do this sort of nice thing where they, they sit on a line between sort of, they're all about a Cambridge man, and it is always a man, who finds sort of an antique item and um, then something terrible happens to him because he's sort of read too many books, basically, is the mm-hmm. plot of every single one. Um, and, uh, but then the language is so unsettling. It uses a lot of touch. It's a lot of being hugged. There's mm-hmm. a lot of times where people, you know, get up in the night or whatever, and they run into the waiting arms of something which is there. And a lot of sort of, of, of wet skin on your, your skin or, or sort of cloth touching you and i guess obviously you've taken the um the idea of the the objects possessing supernatural fantastical dark mysterious qualities into blood money it feels quite politically charged as well were you uh, i well i guess my question is when did you write this we, was this written this year like in the wake of the current political landscape ongoing conversations of colonialism appropriation Black Lives Matter, all of uh, this stuff, the conversations over statues of slave traders. Um, did all that play into it while you were writing it or did you write it before and it just happens to have these resonances? It definitely plays into it. I think, so the idea first occurred to me when a very good friend of mine who is a committed and very genuine anarchist got offered a job at a bank. Oh, wow. Um, and and I, I really loved there was something about that which felt just like curse. Just there was no way you could get that job and not immediately be haunted by <laughs> something. Um, and and so that um, that was where the idea first came from. And I could never quite get it to work um, when I was working on it before. And then I was thinking about Omar James, and I love his stories, but he was very right wing. He didn't think women should be allowed to attend Cambridge. He may have been gay. People speculate, but he was certainly a very right-wing person and his middle name is Rhodes, right? And and one of the big anti-statue campaigns, if you want to use that phrase recently, has been the Rhodes Must Fall campaign uh, in Oxford, trying to take down um, the, the statue of one of the most evil people in history, Cecil Rhodes. And so I, I was interested in how you take all the things I love about those old classical ghost stories and try and use them in a way which isn't super reactionary and nasty. I think all of us, if we grow up in Britain, are haunted by the ghost of the British Empire. Um, Whether we're white and we're haunted by the things our ancestors did, or black and haunted by the things that were done to our ancestors, or, you know, whatever country you come from, you'll have been affected by the empire, because we Mm -hmm. were a global superpower built for extractive, you know, (laughs) just like the worst things imaginable in history. And I'd often think, do the people who were directly responsible for these genocides, men like Henry Kissinger, for example, do these people, do they wake in the middle of the night to the sound of the ghosts? And my mm. instinct is no, but wouldn't it be a wonderful world if they did? 
I actually I have a bonus question. Do you do lectures or TED talks on this? Because I could actually listen to you talk for a lot longer. We don't have time in this podcast, but this is all fascinating. I know. I'm so sorry. No, no. I talk for a million years. Never apologize for being passionate and knowledgeable. Thank you so much for all of that. Where can we find you online? Do you you have a website or is it just social media? And, And do you have anything you'd like to plug other than uh, than your theatre company's website? <laughs> um, so, as I mentioned, there's 10 Days That Shook the World, um, and you can, we're at There by Hangza, is the uh, theatre company's handle on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, uh, which I did with a wonderful company of people, including Katrina Rose, whose new EP is coming out soon, which is called A Room Full of People. If you, so if you like the music in 10 Days That Shook the World, <laughs> check that out. I'm doing a sub plug for her. Um, yeah, yeah, smoothly done. Um, thank you. I was subtle, I thought, until I pointed it out. Um, yeah, yeah, in yeah. A way. Barely noticed. Yeah, great. Um, uh, <laughs> if you like my um, personal work, I'm uh, at Milo Jane Writer uh, on Instagram. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you. Thank you once again to Jane for her piece and her interview, to Hannah and Alan for their performances, and to Alistair for the direction and sound design. One of the other changes we've made to this season is the inclusion of many more sound designers to help our directors edit the recorded plays, and we're thrilled to add quite the range of new people to the team. Our usual sound wizard, Kirsty Gilmore, regrettably couldn't join us this season as too many people have noticed her talents, so she has a lot of work on at the moment, including providing vocal direction on Larian Studios' upcoming game, Baldur's Gate 3. So I'm personally very excited by this, and if you are too, it's out now in early access and available on Steam, so go play it. Now, did you notice how I flawlessly segued into our interval shoutouts there? Well, we have a few more, so get ready to take notes. Director and sound designer Alastair Hunter is the creative director of The House of Hauler, a theatre and audio production company. Their latest short radio play, Just Another Day by Dave Roberts, is available to listen to now. Search for The House of Hauler, that's H-O-R-L-A, wherever you get your podcasts. Derek Murphy, who is appearing in the next play, is also going to be appearing in DK Delight Productions' Christmas storytelling show, The Delight Before Christmas, in December. Details will be formally released soon, but you can follow them at delight underscore DK on Twitter and DK Delight Productions, all one word, on Instagram for more information. Also, I'm in a thing. Both myself and Ragged Scratch podcast director Andrew Spooner provided voices for Assassin's Creed Valhalla. You can hear us as various villagers and soldiers and prizes go to anyone who finds us, especially when we're speaking in Old English. And finally, if you've not had enough of my voice already, you can catch me on the latest What Am I Rolling podcast, a twice-monthly role-playing game podcast hosted by Game Master Fiona. Every month, Fiona takes a brand new group of players and runs them through a one-shot adventure, testing out different RPG game styles or systems. So in this one, we're playing Sleepaway, which is a spooky game of summer camps besieged by a strange and ominous cryptid known as the Lindworm. Find out more and take a listen by searching for What Am I Rolling wherever you find your podcasts. Oh, all right then, don't worry, you can pop your notebooks down. I'll provide links to everything I've just talked about in the show notes so you can find them afterwards. Our second piece this week is Matthew Wixey's Double Agents. In an age of digital espionage, two spies reminisce about the old days during a traditional clandestine park bench rendezvous. But their meeting is about to take an unexpected turn. 
Starring Derek Murphy as Vic and myself, Natalie Winter, as Alex, Double Agents was directed by Thomas Mitchells and edited by John Bartman. Double Agents has a content warning for one instance of swearing. Golden Temple is cold in winter. I'm sorry? The Golden Temple is cold in winter? Uh, I think you've got the wrong person. You're not the hamster. I'm afraid not. Oh, fuck. Uh, okay. Thanks anyway. I'm gonna wring Q's neck. Did you say Q? You know him. Oh. Uh, you know what's happened, don't you? They've messed up the bloody code names again. Oh, you're kidding. I'm meant to be meeting the ocelot. What's your code name? Labradoodle. And you? Bedded bug. God, they're really scraping the barrel with these, aren't they? Remember when you could have a really cool code name, like Dragon or Red Fox? Those were the days. So, somewhere, the ocelot and the hamster are having this exact same conversation. This is what happens when you outsource your resourcing company. <laughs> so I take it you're nothing to do with my assignment, Operation Lethal Bang. Never heard of it. I'm on Operation Secret Kidnap. Have you noticed the operation names are a lot less subtle nowadays too? Tell me about it. Last year I was on Project Frame the Diplomat. It wasn't like this when I got into this game. Tradecraft meant something in those days. <sighs> Remember dead letter drops? Hunting for moles. Sweeping for bugs. Tapping phones. Now it's all fake Facebook profiles and hacking. Hmm. I bloody hate computers. At least we still have clandestine meetings on park benches. Love a clandestine park bench rendezvous. We field agents are a dying breed, aren't we? It's not like it was. I can't remember the last time Q gave me a proper, decent gadget. Same. I mean, look at the watch he gave me for this mission. What does it do? Tells the time. What? No knockout gas? No mini grappling hook? It's waterproof, up to ten metres. Oh, well, that's something. It's not like I'm asking for a jetpack. I told Q, just give me a pen that's a grenade. Or a coin that's a phone. Or a phone that's a grenade. But nope. I'm lucky if he gives me a watch and maybe an oyster card. Ah, Q. Him and his stupid beard. <laughs> I know, and Q doesn't have a beard. Of course he does. He definitely doesn't. We we do spy for the same country, don't we? I really, really hope so. How do we tell? Well, what country do you spy for? <laughs> I'm not going first. What country do you spy for? Okay, okay. On the count of three, we'll both say what country we spy for. Okay? Okay. You ready? Mm-hmm. One, two, three. Britain. Russia. Britain. Brit Britain. You said Britain. Russia. <clears throat> I said Britain. But I don't get it. You said you knew Q. We have a Q in Russia. You don't have a monopoly on the letter Q. 
Right. We've seen the same films you have. Of course. Even if they do celebrate toxic masculinity and depict Russians in a very unflattering light. Yes, okay, sorry. And Goldeneye was basically racist propaganda. Okay, okay, well look, since we're in this situation now, would you be interested in becoming a double agent? <laughs> Flattered, but no. And you? It's tempting. Oh, but I shouldn't. My appraisal's coming up. Mm, that's a shame. I get an extra day off if I recruit a double agent. <gasps> Lucky. We just get a little badge. So, what do we do now? There's only one thing we can do, isn't there? Oh. That's such a shame. I mean, it's so nice to meet someone else who gets it. Same here. I don't actually want to assassinate you. Oh, I don't want to assassinate you either. What if we... What if we just forget it? Forget it? What if we were just two strangers on a park bench having a chat? Sharing a sandwich. Oh, you've got sandwiches. Here you go. Polonium on white? Very funny. What did you think of Casino Royale? That didn't have any Russians in it. A government treasury giving us by 10 million pounds to play poker? Please, I have to buy my own pens. Now, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, there was a good film. I couldn't keep track of it, but I do love Colin Firth. Mm, isn't he just the best? Well, he seems good, stable, nice guy. Yeah, like he would give you a warm hug. So I'm here with the writer of Double Agents. Could you please introduce yourself and your pronouns? Hi, I'm Matt Wixey, uh, he, him. Great, thank you, Matt. You are one of our returning writers. You wrote a piece in the last season. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Yeah, great to be back. Thank you again for the opportunity. I couldn't not include this piece. It just made me properly laugh out loud and very guiltily cast myself in it as well because I just, I wanted to have a play. Um, <laughs> So your piece, Table for Two, was featured in season two. Could you catch us up with what have you been up to since then? And obviously, given everything that's been going on this year, uh, surviving, just surviving, is a totally acceptable answer, I think, for anyone. Yeah, definitely. I mean, sadly, one of the things that I was kind of most looking forward to was my first full-length play debuting at the Brighton Fringe in May. Yeah, you told us about yeah, that. Yeah, obviously that got cancelled, like most theatre, um, all theatre, but um, I'm hoping we'll be able to put it on somewhere in London next year. Other than that, I've had a few pieces at, at online scratch nights. Um, I had a rehearsed reading online of uh, one of my full-length plays, which is um, called Huddle of Penguins, which is about demonic penguins and a group of soldiers who are kind of lost at the, the North Pole after a nuclear holocaust. So, nice. Yeah, that was that was fun. Um, I that was a very serious piece then. Yeah, yeah, yeah very very serious. Yeah, um, I was accepted onto uh, this emerging writers program at the London Library, which is really cool. Oh, so congratulations. I'm yeah, thank you very much. I'm writing a, a full-length play as kind of part of my project for them. Um, there's been some other bits and pieces. I had like a, a short story published in an anthology. Um, and I'm just about to start NaNoWriMo on Sunday, which yes, is National Novel Writing Night. So, yes, yeah, my first time. So, 
excited but also kind of quite nervous oh, so, well yeah. good luck with that i mean so we're recording this on uh, the 30th of october so you've not started yet but by the time this airs you'll be 19 mm. days in and hopefully still going strong I hope so, yeah. <laughs> cool so in your previous interview you said that you'd been writing so you you did some at university and then you obviously you paused to do your security research job and you started writing again properly in October 2018. So that's now two years on. Mm. Is there anything particularly valuable? What, what's the most valuable thing you think you've learned as a writer in those two years? I guess mostly it's been around kind of the process of writing. So I used to, when I first started, spend ages editing as I went. It was kind of every line had to be perfect before I moved on. And now I've tried to, you know, when I write now, I just try and get the first draft down. It doesn't really matter how bad it is. I just try not to do any editing at all until that's done. I guess also, sort of paraphrase someone, it's been about trying to bring the story to the surface in the first draft and then in the subsequent draft, trying to sort of bury it again. Not that that really applies to double agents, which is a really silly piece, but um, it applies to kind of a lot of the stuff I write. It's, it's um, sort of about trusting the audience or the reader to get it rather than explicitly spelling it out. And then I guess also a really valuable thing has been trusting my instincts with what I write. So I used to try and write things that I thought were kind of popular in the industry or be kind of suitable for theatre or audio drama or whatever. But now I just kind of write what I want to write and, you know, um, trust that at least some people will like it, hopefully. <laughs> that sounds like a, a much happier way to, to lead your life rather than mm. trying to second guess and please everyone. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And when you came across the idea for this piece, was there anything particular that inspired it? Or was it just, this would be quite a funny joke, let's write a scene around it? Yeah, um, so the Double Agent sort of came about as part of like a writer's club that I'm a member of. And the first kind of script that I came up with, it was for, for two actors. And the first script I came up with was pretty complex. It would have kind of required, because uh, there was no dialogue to it. So definitely not suitable for kind of audio drama. No, but, um, yeah, um, it, it would have required kind of quite a lot of effort from the actors in terms of rehearsing it and learning all the, the kind of actions and um, you know that sort of thing. So. Um, I kind of scrapped it and just came up with something silly. Um, and, and what sort of inspired it was, um, do you remember Trigger Happy TV? I do, yeah. Yeah, so when I was a kid, there was, I used to watch that, and there was one recurring sketch where Dom Jolly would have um, like a trench coat and sunglasses and a briefcase, and he'd sit down next to strangers on a park bench and say something mysterious like, yeah, yeah, yeah. the weather in Moscow is good this time of year or something like that. And obviously they'd have no idea what he was talking about and sort of <laughs> nervously edge away. So it kind of started from that. And I just thought it would be kind of really fun as well to write about something very serious like intelligence agencies that are run on a shoestring with the same kind of mix-ups and frustrations of corporate culture as any other job. Is there anything coming up? I, I know obviously it's, it's a bit of a, a bleak landscape for, for stuff at the moment, but the audio is still booming. There's loads of uh, podcasts and audio being produced. Um, do you have anything coming up that you'd like to plug? Um, no, like you say, nothing concrete at the moment due to, due to everything that's going on. But um, yeah, as, as I mentioned, hopefully my debut for Let's Play Stray Dogs mm. will, fingers crossed, be on somewhere next year in London. So that's about police culture based on my experiences in law enforcement and kind of what it means to, to reject that culture within the police. Yeah, that's kind of it, I guess, for the moment. There might be some other stuff coming out, but I usually kind of post that stuff on Twitter. But I, yeah, I've got no kind of 
no confirmed news at the moment, sadly. No, fair enough. And speaking of Twitter, for those listeners who had not listened to your previous episode, could you tell us where we can find you online? Yeah, it's at Dark Art Lab. Great. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks again to Matt, Derek, Tom and John for Double Agents and to all our creatives involved in this week's episode. We'll be back again next week with another two short new writing audio plays. So see you then. The Ragged Scratch podcast brought to you by Ragged Foils Productions was produced and hosted by Natalie Winter. Play edits by Alastair Green and John Bartman. Episode edits by Natalie Winter. The Ragged Scratch podcast theme music was composed by Alex Jones. You can find us online at Ragged Foils across Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where we've been tagging this week's creative so you can find out more about them and their work. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us with a donation on coffee.com forward slash Ragged Foils. All donations will go back into making the podcast as best we can. Tell your friends about us so more people can enjoy and celebrate audio plays. And we'll see you next week.